Our, our series now that we're in is, is called Untangling Anxiety. And here's kind of where it all stems from. Um, for those of you who are new, a couple months ago we did a series called Stories. You guys remember this where um, several different members of our church, myself included, we, we kind of shared our story, our testimony of what Jesus has done for us. Um, and one of the stories that got told during that time was uh, Dr. Baskin came and shared his story, which, which included his kind of um, wrestling with anxiety and depression and some other things like that. And a lot of you guys, I was struck by how many of you guys came up to him or came up to me or just in general and said, you know, it was just so nice to hear someone else who's going through what I'm going through, um, who's struggling with something that I struggle with, which is either depression or, or some form of anxiety or, or extra stress. It was just nice to hear somebody else talking about that. And that really made an impact on me. So we're talking about anxiety, and, and about a month ago, I was like, I want to spend some extra time, because raise your hand if you ever, now this happens to any of you guys, but raise your hand if you ever get stressed from time to time, right? Yeah, okay, good. Especially the adults are like, amen. And you'll see, unfortunately, it only increases with age. Um, but anxiety and stress is a big thing, and, and anxiety is a huge topic, like in your social circles, and like mental health, and self-care, and self-love, and all these things are, are a huge part of the conversation for you guys, and so we as the church need to step in and help you guys kind of sort out what's good and what's not so good, and I think anxiety is kind of the big part of this. So, so here's how this is going to work over the next three weeks. Um, tonight, I'm going to kind of give the theological, the biblical side of anxiety and kind of what's going on with that. Um, next week, I'll still be here, but next week Dr. Baskin is going to come up and give you guys more of a practical side to it, how to handle anxiety. This, if doing this will increase your anxiety. Doing this will lessen your anxiety and diet and all these different things like and how this will affect and, and sleep. And so Brent will kind of provide a more practical, I know I'm sure there'll be scripture as well, I would assume, um, but he's going to provide more of a, yeah, whatever, or, or whatever that means. Um, and he'll provide more of a practical side, so that's next week. And then the final week, which is May 15th, we'll kind of do an open kind of Q&A about anxiety. Now, if you have a question about anxiety or a comment based on something that we've said or, or something that you want answered, is it, what about medication? What about therapy? What about, um, are there things I can do to help limit my stress? What about this? What about this? Go to pvnstudents.org over the next two weeks, okay? Please don't do it during the sermon, but anytime after is fine, right? Um, pvnstudents.org, click on the suggestion box, okay? This is a totally anonymous way for you to enter in a question or a comment about what you think, all right? And then Brent and I, again, it'll be totally anonymous, and Brent and I will read those aloud to you guys and answer those questions that last week. Does that make sense? So we really want to kind of run a, a fine-tooth comb through the topic of anxiety, okay? So, without further ado, let's begin. This is called, again, Untangling Anxiety. Um, the American Psychiatric Association publishes a survey every year to measure the stress level of Americans. A thousand people are asked to compare the level of stress in their lives now compared to the level of stress in their lives a year ago. This year, nearly 70%, okay, 70% of the people polled said they were either just as stressed as they were a year ago or even more stressed than they were a year ago. 70%. Only 19%, less than a fifth of the people asked the question, less than a fifth of those people said that they were less stressed than they were a year ago. 
So over, almost 70% have said they're either as stressed as they were a year ago or even more stressed than they were a year ago. But here's the thing. Meanwhile, in the past year, medicine continues to improve. Um, an artificial pancreas has been developed to help patients manage diabetes better. We're in the middle of a full-scale overhaul of brand new methods to combat breast cancer. Uh, machines are being built to regulate your heart while you're asleep during sleep apnea. Average life expectancy for your generation, average life expectancy is 78 years. That's up a full, almost a full decade from what it was in the 1980s, okay? I don't know what was happening in the 80s, but we're up almost a full decade from that. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I know you look at Bureau of Labor Statistics all the time, but I'm just telling you, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the unemployment rate is under 4% as of this month in 2019. So you are likely going to live longer than the generation before you. You are very likely to find and keep a job that you want we are more advanced than ever before in the fields of technology, medicine, finance, military. No other society in the entire, um, no society in human history has been as advanced as we are. Here we go too. Apple Plus, ESPN Plus, Disney Plus, more streaming services where award-winning entertainment is at your fingertips. That's on the way, if not already here, right? Disney Plus is coming at the end of the year. Um, there's a new iPhone released every year or every other year. Please, the droid people are like, oh, well, okay, you're lost, not mine. New iPhone every year, right? Or every other, and, and I know, shout out to the galaxies, everybody's doing fine, right? All these smartphones that can do so much more than we can possibly imagine. Here's the thing. I looked this up, so you know it's true. The first computer, the first ever computer, and can you see them being like, oh, we made it, and it's like, ugh, the first computer took up 1,800 square feet. That's the size of this building. That's the first computer. Your phone now fits in your pocket, and it's faster than that computer was. Just try to wrap your brain around that for a second. Now, we, and we also have new shows, right? New phones, new ways of comfort, new ways of de-stressing. I Googled self-care yesterday. I just Googled self-care. 1,930,000,000 results. If there is one thing in which we continue to dominate the world, it is the ability to build comfort. Yet we are not getting more comfortable we are getting less. With all our technology, with all our stability, with all our innovations and new inventions and ever-increasing Netflix watch list, the suffering and sadness in our hearts seems to only be getting worse. It seems we are getting more stuff and less certain every day. We are getting more stuff and less certain Every day. And listen, this isn't a new thing either, all right? This isn't a new thing. In 1830, right? There's not going to be a quiz, so just kind of hang with me. In 1830, almost 200 years ago, a f this, is, this is unbelievable. A French diplomat spent nine months in America studying, the studying this country and all its wealth and all its people. He returned to France and wrote an 800-page book called Democracy in America that is still in print today. You can get it on Amazon. 
And in this book, this is what he said about the American people. This is, the eight, this is before the Civil War, 1830s. He said this, There is a strange sadness that haunts the citizens of America in the middle of all their wealth. There is a strange sadness that haunts the citizens of America in the middle of all their wealth. Does that not sound like exactly today? He's looking around and he's saying they've got all this stuff, they have all these resources, all this prosperity, and yet they're depressed, they're anxious. Almost 200 years ago, exact same problem. The only thing that stuff really gives us is a reminder that stuff doesn't work. The only real thing that stuff gives us is the reminder that stuff doesn't work. It cannot take away our anxiety. It cannot fix our life. Here's why. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you literally are in any other book, you have gone too far, right? Genesis chapter 3, all right? Um, Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. I think Christina's got it on the board. You are awesome. All right, here we go. And it's also on the board, right? Uh, here we go. Genesis chapter 3, 23 to 24. Therefore the Lord God sent him, that's Adam and Eve, sent them out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which they were taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed an angel, cherubim, he placed an angel with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard them from getting to the tree of life. Here's what's happened here. So Adam and Eve have directly disobeyed God. Now for those of you who are a little bit new to the church scene, let me explain. To directly disobey God. God gives you a command and you do the polar opposite of it, right? That is called sin, all right? Adam and Eve have sinned, and because they sinned, they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They are separated from God, and they are prevented by the angel, right? They're prevented from ever getting back into the presence of God. They cannot reconnect with God. They cannot go back to the presence of God. But it's not just separation. It's not just a separation. Adam and Eve, when they're separated from God, and you've got to follow me here, Adam and Eve, when they're separated from God, because this is your problem too, when they're separated from God, they are no longer whole. They were created by God for union with God. God made them and told them what to do and how to live. God was the one who, what is that called? God is the one who gave them a purpose. God gave them meaning and now he's gone. And since he's gone, they have no more purpose. They have no more meaning. And this is the same problem that you and I have today. This is the same problem our world has today. We are separated from God. Out of the Garden of Eden. Without God, we cannot figure out or live out our purpose. It's not just that you can't figure it out. It's that you can't live it out. Without God, we cannot find, listen, without God, we cannot figure out the meaning of life. Listen to what John Calvin said. Nobody can see themselves clearly until they see God clearly. Nobody can see themselves clearly until they see God clearly. See yourself. What does that mean? To understand your purpose. To understand why you're here. 
to understand life. You cannot do this until you can see God. You see, and, and like you look and you listen to stories about all these famous people and all these accomplished people with these wonderful jobs, and they're miserable. Why? Because our purpose is deeper than our job. You see all these people with good grades or that do well in sports or, or in acting or in band, and yet they, they, they may not be the most enjoyable people to be around. Why? Because that is not deep enough. Our purpose is deeper than our job. God is the light that allows you to see your purpose. See that? You can't see without the light being on. God is the light by which you see your purpose. Adam and Eve are left out of the Garden of Eden, but they are left with a promise. Listen to this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, 15. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So here's what's, gonna, here's what's happening here. A human being, right, this descendant of Eve, this human being is a man, and he will come and put things right. He will come and bring us back into the garden. He will bring us back into the presence of God. Do you remember, all right, here we go. Do you remember, um, and you hear it like in the stories and in the VBS and all the time, um, for church kids, right, for non-church kids, I'm going to fill you in, here we go. When Jesus dies on the cross, right, he dies on the cross, and when he says it is finished, the scene kind of flashes over to the temple where there's this big curtain, this big veil. Help me, what happens to this curtain or this veil? What happens? It tears, yeah, they're my theologians, right? The curtain tears. Here's what's going on. When you look back in the temple when it's being built in the Old Testament, this curtain has angels on it. It's got a design of angels. Now, tell me again, what was guarding Adam and Eve from getting back into the Garden of Eden? What was guarding them? An angel. This, temp, this, this curtain is meant to symbolize the barrier between man and God. Adam and Eve can't get back to God now because the angel's blocking the way. We cannot enter the Holy of Holies in the temple because the angels are blocking the way. You see that? But now when Christ dies, the curtain is torn. The barrier is no longer there. We can now get back to God. The thing that we've been striving to do for all our lives is now possible because of Christ's sacrifice. The curtain, you can't get through the curtain. You can't get through the angel, an angel with a flaming sword. Good luck, right? You do you, but okay, it's not going to work. Christ sacrifices himself for us, which removes God's wrath, which removes the separation. That's what it means when the curtain tears. We're now welcomed back into the Garden of Eden. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. We're going to do a little bit of Bible hopping, all right? So just kind of stay loose. Don't pull a hammy. Stay stretched. Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. Okay, um, and it's on the board too here. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, there's Cain. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son Enoch. This is the first time the word city is used in the Bible. This is the first city we have on record, if you believe the Bible is historical, which we do. This is the first time we see it. Here we see mankind beginning to create and build. This is technology. This is stuff. Look at verse uh, 20. Look at Genesis 4.20. Ada bore Jabal. This is the line of Cain. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Livestock. This is wealth. 
This is trade. This is business. This is 401k. This is financial. This is retirement plan. This is where it comes from. This is building that wealth. Look at 421, the very next verse, 421. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. This is who play the This is the arts. Band kids, holler theater kids. This is, this is the arts. This is music. This is drama. This is comedy. This is stories. Being, this is society being built. And then 422, Zilha also bore, just do your best on the names, right? Zilha also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of brawn. And instrument means things you build with here, right? This is industry. This is building things. Technology, industry, art, business. It's in Genesis chapter 4. Society is being formed here. I'm going to loop this around to anxiety in just a second, right? Society is being formed here. And you, and you might think, oh, this is awesome. We've been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Now we begin to build. This will get us back into the Garden of Eden. All this stuff that we have will now get us back to where we need to be. But that's Genesis chapter 4. And following is Genesis chapter 6, which is Noah's Ark, where God is so sick and so sickened by our continuing sin that he decides to wipe the world out and start over. The, one of the points of Genesis 4 to 6, this text that, you know, all this technology, and then and mankind only gets more and more sinful instead of more and more enlightened. Ever since the beginning, mankind has never been able to get back into the presence of God through stuff. None of those things could tear the veil. None of those things could get them through the barrier back to God. Only Jesus' sacrifice could. And today, just like in 1830, just like thousands of years ago in Genesis chapter 6, we are surrounded by stuff outside, look at me, and empty inside. This is the same problem that has plagued us your parents and your grandparents in the 1830s and the 1530s and the 30s and before Christ. They have all this stuff that they build in Genesis 4 and they get more and more sinful until the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis 11 and 12 where they're separated altogether. Stuff is not bad, right? Stuff is good. The Bible is stuff, right? This microphone is stuff. I'm not trying to say like we need to all be minimalists and not worry about it. But you've got to understand that you're never going to be able to get to God, into the presence of God, except for through Jesus. The presence of God is the ultimate key to your anxiety issues. The presence of, and again, Brent's going to have some more practical stuff on this next week, okay? The, the presence of God, which Christ has made the way, None of these things could tear the veil. None of these things could get us into the Holy of Holies to see God. Only Jesus' sacrifice could tear the veil, which is the symbol of saying He has brought us back into the presence of God. Christ has done that. Three things to remember for anxiety. And then we're done. Three things to remember for anxiety. Three things. Anxiety is natural. Anxiety is good. <gasps> And anxiety, um, I don't know how to say this last one. Anxiety is natural, anxiety is good, and you will always have some. Anxiety is natural, good, and you will always have some. The first one, anxiety is natural. Now, think about what we just read with Genesis, right? 
when mankind was removed from the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, the angel's blocking it, the veil is the symbol of that throughout history, right? When mankind was removed from the Garden of Eden, we lo- remember, we lost our meaning. We lost our purpose. The very thing that we were designed for is now gone. So we have, we're trying to figure out we have no meaning, we have no purpose. It, when we're separated from God, it wasn't just like you were hanging out with your friend and then your friend went home, Oh, right? And you get to see him again tomorrow, no big deal. That doesn't impact you. When we lost the Garden of Eden, when we lost God's presence, it's like losing a part of yourself. Losing a part of yourself. Imagine if you all of a sudden just lost a leg or the ability to speak or the ability to see or an arm or the ability to feel things or smell things. It would impact, it would, it would throw you off. And when we lost God, our entire soul the entire soul of the planet has been thrown off. You see what I mean? We lost a part of ourself when we lost God. And because our world has lost its purpose and meaning, because the world has lost a part of itself, listen, brokenness is a natural part of life now. Because the world is broken. The world has lost a part of itself. You think about it. If you, if you permanently damage your leg, limping is just a part of your life now. It's what you have to expect. That's the world. The world is limping now. Because we've lost God. Because our world has lost its purpose and meaning, brokenness is a part of life. Listen to me. Anxiety is natural in a world that is broken. That doesn't mean it's good, but anxiety is now, just like a limp is not good, but anxiety is a natural part of a world that is broken. Kevin DeYoung says it like this, and here's here's why you've got to understand that this is just a natural part of your life. Kevin DeYoung says, sometimes we feel pressure because we expect to feel no pressure. Here's what this means. Have you ever been anxious about the fact that you're anxious? Like your anxiety builds up because you have anxiety. Like it's not about the thing anymore. You're anxious about the thing, but then your anxiety is like quadrupled because you're anxious about anxious, or you're angry at the fact that you're angry. You shouldn't be angry like this. Well, hold on. You see what I mean? You expect to feel no pressure, and now, now you feel that pressure. We're shocked that we're anxious. We shouldn't, it shouldn't be this way. Why am I anxious? Come on. But that's because we have forgotten that brokenness is a part of life until Jesus comes back. Brokenness is a part of your life until Jesus comes back. We live, right, all of us, well, most of us actually in here, we live in an above-average society that shields us from a lot of the brokenness in the world. We live in an above-average society in America that shields us from a lot of the brokenness in the world. Most Americans, and this is not just the wealthy, this is all of us, most Americans are in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. You are among the wealthiest people in the world. Did you ever watch, there's a show, maybe I'm not supposed to recommend this, Uh, it was on MTV, Uh, it's called Cribs, you know what I'm talking about? It was this show about like, and some of you guys are like, what? That's okay, you're not missing. It was this show where like you would tour, you would tour, the camera would tour like these these huge houses of like all these famous movie stars and singers or whatever, right? And and like you just felt like a failure at the end of it, because you're like, oh my gosh, like his car, he has a bed for his car or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, 
Your, you, you need to understand this. Your house is like that to most of the rest of the world. Your house is like that to most of the rest of the world. We are in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. Not just wealthy, but the American people. The median income, which is the average, the median income for most of the world is about $2,000 a year. You will, you will make more than that working seasonally at a retail store. You may not even be able to drive yet. And you're making more money than most families around the world. And that's not your fault. That's not a bad thing, per se. But it has an effect on us. A guy named David Rosemarin is the founder of the Center for Anxiety and an assistant professor at Harvard. So that, that's all blah, blah, blah. Didn't mean This dude knows what he's talking about. All right? Listen to what he says. Listen to this. What's really, here we go. What's really fascinating is if you go to Africa, where in certain countries it's unknown whether people will be able to survive the year or not, the anxiety levels are generally lower there than they are here. So uncertain whether or not they're going to live out the year, their anxiety level is lower than yours. Because, listen, their tolerance for uncertainty is higher. Here's what that means. They understand the brokenness of this world better than we do. You say to an American, you know, some of you may not make it throughout the rest of the year. And all of, none of you listen to that. I don't. You're like, okay. And then I say like, half of you are going to die this year. You're going to be like, are you kidding me? No, absolutely not. But for people there, they say, yeah, I mean, that's part of the world. That's what the world is now. In America, we have more certainty than ever. Therefore, we can't handle uncertainty when it comes. In America, we have more certainty than ever. Therefore, we can't handle uncertainty when it comes. And that's anxiety. Uncertainty. We can't handle it because we live, because you and I live in a society that thinks uncertainty doesn't exist. So we're shocked when it happens, you see? Um, there's a pastor named Tim Keller who you must listen to. He's all over YouTube. He tells this great example of he went to visit some friends who lived um, right by a train track, like 30 feet from the train tracks. And Tim's like eating dinner with him or whatever, and the train just, you know, runs by, blows the horn. And Tim like almost falls out of his chair. And his, his friend is like, what are you doing? And Tim's like, the, the train. And the friend says, oh my gosh, I didn't even hear it. That's the difference between our world and the rest of the world. The train that's coming is so unexpected to us, and it shouldn't be this way, and I can't believe this is happening. But for everyone else, they say, dude, that's, that's 30 feet from my house. Anxiety is natural because the world is broken. You have to understand that. You, the first key to understanding anxiety, to handling anxiety better, is understanding that you have to be influenced by the Bible, not the rest of the world, not Instagram. Because the Bible teaches us that our world is broken, and it teaches us why our world is broken. Because the world is broken, people are 
weird and difficult and scary sometimes. Because the world is broken, the weather won't always be safe or convenient. Because the world is broken, your job won't always be easy. So don't be shocked when it is that way. The Bible shows us this. When you go over a big speed bump, the shocks, the reason your car doesn't just disintegrate, for most of you, right, is that your car has what's called shocks that, that can withstand the bump. Does that make sense? The, that's what the Bible does for your anxiety. The Bible absorbs the initial shock of your anxiety. Uncertainty hits, the, the, the worst person in your group hits, or the bad job hits, or the bad weather. The Bible told us it was going to be like this. The Bible said it's like this. So now that you're not so, and as you work this into your soul, you won't be so shocked every time things don't go your way, and your anxiety will start to go down. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? You have to understand that this is part of the world we live in, and that'll allow you to absorb that initial shock, and then you can start to move forward. All right? Again, that's not the cure all like, there you go, now get out there and be somebody. Like, that's not the cure. But that's the first step in understanding. Second thing, so anxiety is natural. Um, well, let me, I mean, let me finish this up. The Bible shows us this. The Bible helps us absorb. The Bible lovingly reminds us that uncertainty is part of our reality. Uncertainty is part of your reality and that Jesus will certainly return to fix it someday. The Bible lovingly reminds us that uncertainty is part of our reality and that Jesus will certainly return to fix it. Number two, some anxiety is good, okay? Some anxiety is good. I have anxiety. Well, me too. Literally everyone has anxiety, okay? They do. And a lot of that, is, it's interesting if you Google anxiety or if you look in like medical journals. I know you guys are in medical journals all the time, I'm sorry. But if you look in medical journals for anxiety, you know the two words that appear, and Dr. Baskin can tell you guys more about this than me. But when you look up anxiety, two words that appear most often are normal and healthy. Not two words that your culture would use to describe anxiety. Does that make sense? They want to get rid of it. They want to be done with it. No more anxiety. And this leads to us pushing too far the other way where we don't feel anything or so numb to everything. But some anxiety is good. Anxiety, listen, anxiety is a normal response to a broken world when things go wrong. Anxiety is a normal response. If I like, if we're driving down Martha Berry and I open the front door and I'm like, see it, and I knock you out, you're gonna, you're gonna, there's gonna be some anxiety. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious. Is that okay? Yeah, it's okay. You're, you're literally been rolled out into trap. I'd be anxious too. You're kind of supposed to be concerned about those things, right? Please don't tell your parents so like that's the analogy that I decided. To, um, anxiety. Listen, anxiety makes us aware of things being wrong so that we're not numb to the brokenness. Do you, see, do you ever, uh, my brother and I was driving my brother home from high school one time and we saw this, this girl who had just got her license, poor thing, and she was backing out and there was another car parked like perpendicular and she was backing out and we were like, no, 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 like watching, like that's anxiety. That's, we cared about her situation. You see what I mean? Like if we weren't anxious, we would just watch her slam into this dude. You see what I mean? Anxiety is healthy and good in some places. Listen, Anxiety can trigger adrenaline to help us in a situation. Um, when you shoot a basketball or you're about to walk on stage to perform for the first time, that adrenaline of will the ball go in or not, or you're walking onto stage for the first time, the unknown 
That's part of anxiety. All of you have anxiety at times. Listen, anxiety keeps you focused. Anxiety keeps you safe. Anxiety is kind of a cuss word in our culture now. But some anxiety is okay and not, listen, not just okay. It's normal and healthy. Paul tells us, remember, Paul tells you to be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But then, later on, in another verse of the Bible, Paul says he is anxious and worried about all the churches that he has to work on. Well, now, wait a minute. Be anxious about nothing. I'm anxious about the the churches that I have to take care of. The only way that makes sense, either Paul is lying or there is such a thing as good anxiety. Anxiety is good. Some anxiety is good. And number three, this is the most important one, I think. Maybe they're all important. I don't know. You pick and choose. You'll always have some anxiety. Listen to these two stories. In the 1500s, a man named Martin Luther stood before the Holy Roman Emperor and the Imperial Council. True story. When he, where he was accused of being a heretic and an outlaw because his beliefs were against Roman Catholic doctrine that was both unreasonable and unbiblical. Here's what's going on. What are you talking about? All right. The biggest turning point in modern church history is called the Reformation. All right. At the height of the Reformation in the 1500s, Roman Catholic doctrine, some of you guys learned, maybe learned about this in history or slept through it, whatever, here you go. This is, I'm way more interesting than that, so just hang on. Um, Roman Catholic doctrine had, had, and I'm not trying to pop anybody in here, I'm just telling you what I'm telling you. You can look this up in any history book. Roman Catholic doctrine had spun out of control, way unbiblical. And Martin Luther was one of, one of the, he was not the first, but he was one of these guys who started to stand up and say, uh, that's not in the Bible, right? He posts the 95 theses, right, on the wall of the, of the church or whatever, right? Okay, um, just hang with me, right? So Martin Luther does this, and the Roman Catholic Church is not okay with this. So the Holy Roman Emperor and the Imperial Council call him to meet them and to state his case. Luther was unsure if he would be beaten to death, burned at the stake, or released, he was brought before the council on, on April 16th, 1521, all of, and, and he, he walks up before the council, there's this huge table, true story, and on this table is all his writings, all his things, like imagine, like all his tweets or whatever, right? All his writings against the Catholic Church, calling them heretics, calling them fools, and the, and the Holy Roman Emperor looks down at him and asks him, do you stand by these? Luther, who was known for his powerful speaking, and he was a big guy, he was a powerful presence, Instead of delivering a beautiful speech, he, he becomes shaky. And he asks in a shaky voice for a day to think and come back with a response the next day. Now, Luther believed all this stuff. He was leading the movement. And the people were behind him. He's a huge part of the reason that, one, I can get married, by the way. Catholic priests can't marry. He's one of the huge reasons we can share the Word of God. He believes all this stuff. He's so important. And he asks for a day, and he becomes shaky and nervous. Do you know what that's called? Anxiety. That night, remember he asked for a day, that night in his jail cell, Luther, very nervous and prayerful, wrote a response that is one of the most famous paragraphs in Christian history. The next day he gave it and told them, this is part of it, he says, I will not withdraw anything I have said. Here I stand. Amen. 
That's what everyone remembers Luther for. Nobody remembers the day before where he was shaky and nervous and his anxiety was beginning to build. You know what that feels like. Luther was scared. Luther was anxious. Listen to me. But prayerfully walked into the room anyway. Peter, the Apostle Peter, goes before what's called the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. You can read this. The Sanhedrin is the head of Jewish society. They hated Jesus. They're the ones that killed him. 71 judges, 71 people. It's more people that are in this room. 71 of the most influential, powerful men in Jewish society looking down at Peter, debating whether or not they're going to kill him. And Acts 4.13 says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and later in the chapter it says that Peter was bold before these men. So Peter's got no anxiety, right? Peter's killing it. He's the man. He's the apostle. He's doing great. Look at what Galatians 2.12 says. Galatians 2.12. Before certain men came from James, this is Peter, Peter was eating with Gentiles. That's non-Jewish people. Peter was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, these men from James, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the group of circumcision. So Peter's eating with Gentiles. He's eating at their table at lunch, literally. He's hanging out with them. Then these Jewish people come and they say, whoa, 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 Peter, you have to be circumcised to be a Christian. Why are you hanging out with these people? And Peter backs off. He stops eating with these people. And it says right there, it says, for fear of them. Social anxiety, is it not? Paul, in the next verse, confronts Peter to his face and says, what are you doing? Peter saw the transfiguration. Peter saw Jesus after, after the crucifixion. After. Peter walked with Jesus for three years. This is like a decade later, and still he has anxiety. Listen to me, and then we're almost finished. You've got to understand this, because I'm so afraid that so many of you think, I'm never going to be better unless I'm cured of my anxiety. One, we've already talked about why that's not good because some anxiety is good. But some of you think that just because you have anxiety, there's no victory in your life. You're always going to be plagued with it. You're always going to suffer. You're always going to be pinned under it. Listen to this. And think about the stories that we just told. History is not marked by Christians who have been completely free of anxiety. Listen to me. History is marked by people who by God's grace walked through anxiety when they had to. History is not marked by Christians who are anxiety free. Your goal doesn't need to be to be anxiety free. History is marked by people who by God's grace walked through anxiety when they had to. <clears throat> they had their anxiety and they kept walking. They kept trying. They kept failing. They kept moving. Listen to me. Listen to me. Because there's so much junk that gets preached like this. Listen. The Christian life is not always a life of victory. Don't listen to people who say that. The Christian life is not always a life of victory because it's not about your victory. The Christian life is a life of fighting in light of Jesus' victory. 
The Christian life is not just about, I'm going to get victory over lust. I'm going to get victory over anxiety. I'm going to get victory over this. I'm going to get victory over my worry. I'm going to get victory over my laziness. I'm going to get victory over... It's not a life of constant... You know that. Be a Christian for more than 15 minutes and you know that. The Christian life is not a life of victory. The Christian life is a life of fighting in light of Jesus' victory. Do you see the difference in that? Christ has won the ultimate fight and now that gives us strength to fight until our fight is over. The strength to, I feel this anxiety, but I'm going to go to the meeting anyway. I feel this anxiety, and I'm not going to go to the meeting. I can't do it. I just can't do it. But instead of shutting out and leaving forever, all right, I'm going to try to go to the meeting next week instead. You see what I mean? There's a difference there. Last verse. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. This is Paul speaking. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. All right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and it'll be up here. Now think about anxiety. Think, look at all these things plaguing these people. Or do you not know, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous, which is wrongdoers, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, or idolaters, you could, say, you could say wrongdoers there, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, next up, nor thieves, nor the greedy, you ever been greedy? Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor uh, revilers is almost like um, foul language, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, verse 11, and such were some of you. You used to do these things, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified, you were saved in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit of our God. Let me ask you a question. It said wrongdoers. And he says, you used to be a wrongdoer and now you're a Christian. Do you think wrongdoers still did wrong after they became Christians? Those of you who are Christians, have you ever done anything wrong since then? Get out, right? Someone who is sexually immoral, do you think they still have feelings of lust even after becoming a Christian? Yeah, but Paul's point, listen, Paul's point is not that these things have been totally erased from their lives. Think about anxiety. Paul's point is not that now that they become a Christian, all this stuff is totally erased from their life. Listen, Paul's point is that because of what Jesus has done, those things have been hit by a knockout punch and they are on the way down. Like a boxer hitting the ring, he's knocked out and he's on his way to hit the ground to be done. When you see anxiety like that, when you see that you'll still have it, listen to me, you will still have it. It'll still be there. But because of what Jesus has done, it's on the way down. When you realize that Christ has dealt the final blow to your anxiety, and now it's just clamoring to try to stay on top, and it won't feel like that all the time, right? You're going to lose some battles. I lose battles, right? But because of what Christ has done, the knockout blow has been dealt. And when you start to realize that, listen, when you start to work that into your heart, hope starts to form in your heart where there used to only be anxiety. Now there's anxiety and something else is in there. We live in a broken world. So anxiety is natural. 
you care about things. Anxiety is what happens when something you care about is in trouble and then you take it too far. See what I mean? You care about things. Some anxiety is good. Until we get to be with Jesus. We always talk about heaven and we don't really know what's heaven going to be like. Well, here's one thing to start to put in there. Until we get to be with Jesus, during times of anxiety, we hang on to him. Let's do, do this with me. Don't, let's not be a church that goes out and tells people Jesus is the way to get rid of all your anxiety. Jesus is the way to get rid of all of this. No, no, no. Jesus is the one who gives us the, the strength to fight these things. Jesus is the one who gives us the strength to walk back into the room anyway. Until we get to be with Jesus during times of anxiety, we hang on to him. And we do the best we can to walk with it anyway. So when you have anxiety, hold on to Jesus and do the best you can to take the test anyway, to go to the meeting anyway, to go to the new group of, of friends anyway. Do the best you can to walk in. That's all Peter did. Martin Luther's like the dude. That's all he did. He, he prayerfully walked with it anyway. That's part of what, and listen to the last thing. That's part of what will make life with Christ so wonderful in the new heavens and the new earth is that there will never be any more anxiety about anything. One thing that Christians don't understand is what the cross really did. What if I told you that not just your sin was nailed to the cross, but all your anxiety was nailed to it as well. All your anxiety was nailed to the cross with Jesus and it died and he rose again and it didn't. Your anxiety will never get the last word on your life. When you die, okay, ooh, thanks Ryan, but whatever. When you die, anxiety will not get to shadow over you and take you. Christ will. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, yeah, when you die, your anxiety and your lust and your mess is not going to overshadow you. Christ will. Let's pray. Anyway.